so, yes, Romans chapter 8, from verse, starting at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But we hope for what we do not yet have. We wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things, God who works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Uh, will you join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time that we dedicate now to hearing from your word and father we pray that um, you would give us uh, insight and understanding uh, that uh, we would grow in our confidence in who you are in all that you've done for us and in our relationship with you 
that we would be people who walk worthily. And we ask these things in the precious name of our Saviour. Amen. I wonder if you've ever had reason to, uh, to question whether or not God really does love you. Sometimes uh, suffering will tempt us to think that way. Uh, in times of um, perhaps sickness or bereavement, uh, in times of uh, financial hardship or relational hardship, uh, in times of, uh, of accident, uh, or, or poverty, uh, we may ask, if God really does love me, then why am I having such a tough time? Perhaps he doesn't love me. Perhaps, perhaps it's a hoax. Perhaps it's all just a, a fantasy. Does God really love me? And that's an understandable response, uh, particularly in the time in a time when tragedy has struck and a person is really grappling and processing with what's going on in their lives. It's also possible to doubt not that God does love us, but rather that he, he even could love us. Our heart's desire as Christians is to, is to please God, but in our struggle with sin and, and despite uh, our steps forward, despite our, our victories, we, we nevertheless do fall to temptation. We hate our sin. And in our disappointment, we may even wonder where we stand with God. I'm so unworthy. How could he love even me? And so... When we uh, attempted to doubt God's love for us, how should we respond? How should we deal with that? Uh, what, what, what does God's word say to us on that particular subject on, in that time of doubt? Uh, when we're tempted to doubt his love for us. When we come to Romans chapter 8, this is really the, the issue that the second part of Romans 8 uh, addresses. And so I would invite you to open up your Bibles at Romans 8 and we'd be looking at that second part. And as I've worked through this myself, uh, I've, what st stood out for me is that the, the word groaning is a word which recurs throughout this passage. And I think that that's one of the keys to understanding how we ought to respond uh, to the doubts that we may have. Let me show it to you. Um, we see it firstly in verses 18 through to 23 where Paul starts off by describing the, the whole of creation as uh, being in a state of, of groaning and groaning as in the, pa as in the pains of childbirth. And we, we understand what that means, that uh, despite the, the painful process that there is a joyful outcome have a look, for example, in verse 18, uh, where he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. 
For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been, and here it is, groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So how should we understand suffering, uh, the kind of suffering which, which actually comes from nature, uh, the kind of suffering that comes as a result of, uh, of uh, things which are outside of our control, um, such as sickness and death and accident and, and so on? Well, how does Paul here describe the creation? Uh, he describes the creation as being subjected to frustration and in bondage to decay. Now, is that the way that the creation is described in Genesis chapter 1? No, it's not, is it? Uh, far from it, in fact. Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, when, when God looked, had created all of the, uh, the, the universe and the world and he looked at what he had made and God said that it was very... Very good, very good. And so, uh, so that life for Adam uh, would be one of productive satisfaction and joy uh, in the service of God. Now that's all been changed. That's not a picture of the world as we see it or that which is described here in, in Romans chapter 8. And that is because sin changed all of that. Uh, do you remember how it was that, uh, that, Ab that, that, that Adam was punished in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, let's have a look at it actually. If you keep your finger or something rather in Romans chapter 8 and just flip back to Genesis chapter 3 for a moment. I think it would be helpful to actually look at this as I read it to you. In Genesis chapter 3, in the curse that God pronounces upon Adam and uh, we could pick it up at uh, verse... Uh, let's see, verse uh, 17, uh, second part of verse 17, uh, where God says to Adam, Cursed now is the ground because of you. Uh, through painful toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. Uh, it'll produce thorns and thistles for you to eat, and you'll eat the, the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will now eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. Now, this is no picture of paradise, is it? Uh, th th rather, this is a picture of creation which has now fallen, creation which is uh, now subject to frustration and decay, where hardship, toil, struggle and death are now the norm. Of course, our world is very beautiful, isn't it? We look around at our world, there is so much which is so much beauty and grandeur and so much which is lovely. And yet in nature there is so much also which causes suffering. Floods and earthquakes and fires and disasters. It's beautiful because it's been created, but there is suffering because the creation itself is now caught up in the judgment upon man who, of course, is part of the creation, the very pinnacle of the creation. 
and he has drawn all of creation into this uh, uh, situation of being fallen. So what this means is that when we suffer, uh, we ought not to simply conclude that God therefore doesn't love us. Uh, Rather, it is a potent reminder that we still live in a world, a world which is under the curse of Genesis chapter 3. That is the reality of life for us in this age. Now, here's the thing. That curse will not endure forever. There's a great picture in Revelation chapter 22 of the, um, of, of, of the New Jerusalem, of, of the city, the, the city uh, through which flows the, the river of life, uh, a city which contains the tree of life and the, and the throne of God, and a city which is described in Revelation 22 as being where no longer will there be any curse. No longer will there be any curse. And it's that future which in Romans chapter 8, the whole of the creation now groans for, uh, eagerly awaiting the day when the glory of God's people, says Paul, will be revealed at the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. On that day when the creation itself will be liberated, when the creation itself will be restored to that which God intended, a restoration to Eden, as it were. So the creation, therefore, Paul says, is groaning, as in the pains of childbirth. It's tough now, but our sufferings cannot compare to the glory that that lies ahead. Now, by the way, this biblical picture helps us to make sense of our world because it helps us to to reconcile the the doctrine of God's good creation with the experience of suffering that that, that is ours uh, and the, the sufferings that result from the imperfections of the fallen world in which we live. So that when painful things happen to us, It's not because God doesn't love us. It's because we live in a broken world. That's the reason. Now, notice how the groaning of the creation is is connected with our groaning as individuals. Pick it up at verse 23. Verse 23, Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope you were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. As Christians, not only do we suffer that which is common to uh, all of humanity, but there is also the inner struggle that Paul has been uh, talking about in Romans chapter 7 and in the earlier part of chapter 8. That inner struggle where uh, in our minds, in our, that is in our inner beings, uh, we, we want to obey God, uh, but we live in this body of death. We want to be godly, but sometimes we fall into temptation. As Paul says, the things which I want to do, I do not do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. 
Who will liberate me from this body of death? And, and so uh, when we, in chapter 7, verse 23, there is this war which is raging within us. And sometimes we fail to live God's way. And we can hate ourselves for it. And we can doubt even that God would still love us. But the only reason that we have this internal struggle and we groan is because we actually have God's Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, we have, as Paul says in verse 23, the first fruits. Uh, that is, we have the, uh, the first instalment. We have the, the guarantee. When the, when the farmer sees the first fruits uh, on his trees, what does he know? He knows that the harvest is going to happen. He knows that there's a lot more stuff that's yet to come. So the Holy Spirit in our lives is the first fruits. It is the guarantee of that which lies ahead for us. And that is the, uh, the fulfilment of our adoption as God's sons uh, and daughters. So we, we're already adopted, but we haven't received the full fulfilment of that as yet. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the first fruits, the guarantee of our adoptions as sons and daughters of God, heirs of the inheritance, and more than that, is the first fruits of our new and redeemed bodies, says Paul. Our new and redeemed bodies, free of sin and free of the effects of the fall. That is what awaits us. Now, when we sin... Uh, we should be disappointed. But we don't despair. Uh, instead, we, uh, we keep on repenting and we, we wait patiently uh, for the redemption of our bodies on the day that Jesus returns. So we're realistic. We know that that is the state that we're in. We don't have it yet, but we know that it's coming. And you know what? As we do so, God has not left us alone. Do you remember in uh, John chapter 16 when Jesus was telling his disciples that uh, he was going to, to leave them and go to be with his father and they didn't know what he was talking about in terms of getting to his father? But when he said that he was going to leave them, he also said, I'm not going to leave you alone. That rather he was going to uh, send another. He was going to send a counsellor, someone who would be alongside with them, and that is the Holy Spirit. Verse 26. Paul goes on, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with, and here it is, with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Now, this is a pretty interesting couple of verses, don't you reckon? Um, this idea that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us and groaning with words. That, what, what does it mean? Uh, what's, what's Paul on about here? Uh, there are a couple of different, many different interpretations of this actually i mean does it mean as some say that um, 
uh, ecstatic utterances, uh, what some people think is speaking in tongues, that, uh, uh, that we pray to God, but we pray, when we pray, it's not us, actually us praying, it's the Holy Spirit praying, and so the noises, the sounds which come out, some, uh, that which we have no understanding of. Is that what it means? Uh, or is it something else? Some people have said that uh, this means that we don't actually pray, the Spirit is just praying for us when we're not praying, and so on. Is that what it means? I think one of the important principles in interpreting the Bible is that when we come across a passage that's a little bit difficult uh, to understand, that we, uh, we, we look at it in its setting, uh, in its context, and we uh, try to see how it fits in with the passages that go before it and after it. Uh, and, and so I think that's what we need to do here. Uh, we need to interpret this in the context of Paul's logic, uh, particularly in Romans 7 and Romans 8, uh, the topics that he's actually talking about. And in that regard, verse 27 is important, and uh, that is that God, we're told, knows the, quote, mind of the spirit. Now, that's a phrase which we've already um, come across uh, a couple of weeks ago. And so if you, or last week actually, if you have a look back at verse 6 of Romans 8, let me read that for you. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. Now, the, the phrase, the mind controlled by the spirit, uh, is literally the mind of the spirit. That's what it says in the original. And so it's actually the very same phrase. It's the exact same phrase. Uh, as that which is used in verse 27. And so remember that the mind of the spirit uh, in Romans 7 and Romans 8 is in conflict with the body of death. And so if we have the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of the spirit, uh, which is actually controlling how we think and what our desires are, what, it, what the will of our hearts are, uh, but we live in this body of death. And so we, we groan. And, and as we, we groan, we, we groan longing for the redemption of our bodies in verse 23. And as we groan for that, so too does God's spirit within us. In our struggle with sin... And in our failures in particular, we sometimes just don't know what to pray. We don't know what to pray. But God knows our heart. Because his spirit dwelling within us, we're told, intercedes. That is, speaks to the Father on our behalf, so that God knows that despite our failings, that the desire of our heart is for him. And that we would change to live in accordance with God's will. I think that, does that make sense? Yes, no. There's other interpretations. Listen to them as well. This is my, what I've sort of thought about this passage. It seems to make sense of the, uh, 
uh, of the groaning of the creation, the groaning that we experience and the groaning of the Spirit. And the Spirit groans uh, for God's will uh, in our lives. What is God's will? What is God's purpose for us? Verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, Romans 8.28, it's got to be one of the favourite verses in the whole Bible, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, with good reason because countless millions of Christians have found Romans 8.28 to be of great value and of great comfort. My guess is that there'd be a whole stack of us here in the congregation who could recite it uh, by memory. Would that be right? Um, you know how it goes. For in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according. If you haven't memorised it, great passage to memorise. But what is this good uh, for which God works in our lives? Uh, if we ask people what is the good life, uh, many, uh, quite understandably, would say, well, the good life, that's got to be a life where there's only ever enjoyment and it's a life which is free of all trouble and all hardship. be great, wouldn't it? And that is good. But it's not the good we enjoy now, that's something for the future. Not in this life. In this life, God's good, in verse 29, is that we should be conformed to the likeness of his son, Jesus. And in that sense, that we would be actually like Adam was before the fall. It's talking about the redemption of our bodies. It's talking about that which we groan for. God wants us to be godly. And that is the goal to which God has been working towards. That is his whole plan of salvation and redemption uh, that he has had since the very beginning. He predestined us, says Paul. He called us. He has justified us by the death of his son... And this is, uh, it's an unstoppable plan. Actually, the fancy word for that is inexorable. I checked that out yesterday in the dictionary. God's inexorable plan. It's unstoppable. It's, un it's going to happen no matter what. It cannot be thwarted. So unstoppable that Paul can uh, add to... Um, being called and being justified, he can add to that that we have been glorified. Uh, he can speak of our future glorification in the past tense. That is, it is so certain that it will happen that it's a done deal. It's a done deal. It's going to happen. In fact, God uses human sin and suffering uh, to achieve his purposes. Ever heard of the death of Jesus on the cross? The execution of Jesus, 
was the uh, epitome, it was the most stark expression of human sin and yet God actually took hold of it and God used man's evil to bring about our ultimate good, our salvation. God does that. Joseph in Egypt, when he met up with his brothers who had sold him into slavery, what you intended for evil, God has used for good. God uses our suffering uh, in order to, to discipline us. Uh, in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, we're told that, that God disciplines, that when God disciplines us, he's treating us as sons and daughters and he disciplines us not because he hates us but because he loves us and he's shaping us so that even in our pain and suffering God is working for our ultimate good perhaps to strip away our pride perhaps to take away our idols perhaps that we would look to him and learn to trust in him even more Sometimes it's pretty hard to see through the fog of our suffering though, isn't it? And, and we may doubt that God does love us. And when we stumble in our godliness, Satan can point the accusing finger so that we might even doubt that God even could love us. Well, uh, in verses 31 to 39, we have every reason for confidence Verse 31, uh, Paul says, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Indeed. You know, the story of Abraham and his son Isaac, I think, is one of the most gripping stories in the Bible. Uh, the story of, of Abraham following uh, the, the word from God as he takes his son on a journey. His son who he had waited his whole life to receive. The son who was the, the joy of his heart. He takes him on this journey, leaves the servants behind and they get to the place of sacrifice and the son says, Dad, I can see the altar, I can see the, that you've made, I can see the... but where's, where's the animal? It breaks your heart, doesn't it? As you see Abraham and you feel his love and his tension and his that he's prepared to give to God the very, his own son. And then there's the ram in the thicket. See, Abraham trusted God, was prepared to give God everything he had, trusting in resurrection. The point Paul here make, makes is that God has given us his son. Is there any more proof that we need that there is no limit 
to how much God loves us. If he's given us his son, what more would he not give us? Verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, here Paul sketches a, a courtroom scene kind of drama and it's you and I, we're, we're the ones who are in the dock and God is the judge. But God has already, as judge, cleared our guilt by giving his son for us. And so therefore, who would step up? Who would dare to bring any charge against us? Satan may try. Oh yes, she trusts in Jesus. But she still sins. She keeps on failing the temptation test. She doesn't really love you. She deserves condemnation. But we have an advocate. Because just as the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf from within us, so too we are told that Jesus intercedes on our behalf, but not from within us, but from within the throne room of God, as he seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Yes, our advocate says she struggles with sin, but I died and I rose again. Her guilt has been cleared. Is there anything? Is there anything, friends, which can separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or, or the sword? You see, the sufferings of this life don't mean that God doesn't love us. They tell us that we live in a fallen world. Indeed, as Paul says elsewhere uh, in Philippians 4, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that we in fact rejoice in our sufferings. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that though outwardly I'm wasting away in the midst of the trials and the difficulties, inwardly, inwardly, I'm being renewed day by day. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that through them that God is shaping us to be brought into conformity to the likeness of his Son. And together with God's creation and with God's Spirit, we groan. But we groan forwardly as we look forward to the new heaven and the new earth where in Revelation chapter 21, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. For there will be no more pain or death or mourning or crying or sickness. Because his plan is brought to fruition that he makes all things new. And Satan? Well, he just has no longer got any valid charge against us. The death and the resurrection of Jesus has confiscated his power, the power that he had over us, the power of our guilt. 
So Paul concludes in verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation, nothing, nothing, friends, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a done deal. It's Now, of course, the person who rejects Christ, uh, the person who uh, willfully disobeys and, and doesn't care about repentance, no matter what they might say with their lips, they actually have never grasped his love for them in the first place. I'm not talking about them. And if that's you, you need to actually do something about that now. And put your trust in Jesus. But if you are in Christ Jesus, your salvation is sealed. Uh, God's love, how would you describe God? I'd, I'd say it's airtight. It's airtight. No matter how you might have sinned in the past, no matter what you may have done, no matter the effect that you've had on other people and the great offence that you've caused towards God, no matter the gravity of your sin, or as you stumble even now, as you truly aim to be godly, you are more than a conqueror. Not through you, but through Jesus Christ who loved you. And, and in this painful toil of life, we therefore do not lose heart. We can face our struggles knowing that God is shaping us and knowing that those struggles simply do not hold a candle to the glory which awaits those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that what you're looking forward to? Is that what you're groaning for? Is that your heart's desire? Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your uh, love which is beyond measure that you have displayed towards us in the giving of your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you for your unstoppable plan which began before creation and comes to fruition in the new heaven and the new earth. Father, we thank you for your spirit who intercedes on our behalf that you would know our heart's desire. We thank you for your son who is seated at your right hand interceding for us declaring that our guilt has been paid. And so, Father God, it is with confidence that we face each day, confidence not in ourselves but in you. Now, Lord God, we pray that by your spirit and your word that we would indeed, and through the trials of this life, that we would be changing, that we would be growing, that we would be brought into greater conformity to the likeness of your Son, knowing that it is only on that day when he comes again that indeed we will have that redeemed body and that the tension between our mind and our bodies will be over. Oh Lord God, we look forward to that day. We pray, come Lord Jesus, come. And as we await for the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, 
We ask that you would help us to live holy and upright lives. In Jesus' name, amen.